0: The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com/slash premium. It only costs five dollars a month. Earlier today, the Federal Reserve did exactly what everybody expected them to do. They raised the Fed funds rate by 25 basis points. We're now at 4.5 to 4.75. That is the range that the Fed targets. And the reason the Fed raised by 25 basis points is because that's exactly what everybody expected. And the Fed doesn't want to do anything that the markets don't expect. It pretty much delivers whatever is expected. But apparently what wasn't expected is that Powell was not as hawkish as some people had feared. In fact, before we got the news of the rate hike, the Dow Jones was down about 300 points. And then after we got the news, there was a bit of a knee-jerk rally, but then the Dow Jones fell and hit new lows, and at one point was down over 400 points. In fact, it was down 400 points with less than a minute to go in his prepared remarks. But when he began to wrap up his remarks and he didn't drop any hawkish bombshells on the market, you got an immediate rally. And by the time he stopped speaking, less than a minute later, the Dow was only down about 250. But then as the press conference came to an end, the Dow had a big rally. At one point, the Dow was up better than 200 points. But by the close, it was barely in the black. The Dow Jones up about seven points on the day. But a much bigger move in the NASDAQ, it was up two full percent. In fact, the Kathy Wood ARK Innovation ETF did even better, up 4.4 percent. In fact, the NASDAQ is continuing its rally after hours. It's up another 1 percent on the back of better than expected earnings out of Meta which used to be Facebook, that stock is up better than 20% as a result of those earnings. Although I think more important than the earnings was the massive $40 billion stock buyback that they also announced. But I think what's more significant about the short covering rally that continues in tech stocks and the fact that people are trying to play this bounce by buying the most beaten down assets from 2023 some of the meme stocks are rallying. Bitcoin spiked again. It's getting close to 24,000. But I think the most significant action is in the foreign exchange markets and in the gold market. The dollar tank, the dollar index fell a full percentage point. We almost cracked the 101 handle. We closed at one hundred one spot 08. This is a new low for the year. In fact, this is the lowest the dollar index has traded. Since April of last year, as the dollar went down, gold went up. We closed just above $1,950 an ounce. This is also a new high on the year for gold. And it's the highest price gold has traded again since April of last year. We also had a rise in bonds, a fall in bond yields. In fact, the yield on the 10-year is now back below 34 And the yield on the 30-year is below 3.5 and a half. I think traders are looking at the softening economic data and the pullback in some of the inflation measures that we've had in recent months. And they think that the Fed is either done hiking now, even though Powell indicated that a couple of more hikes are coming. But again, these are 25 basis point hikes. So maybe at the most, the Fed is talking about bringing rates up to five and a quarter, maybe five and a half max. But I think the markets believe that the Fed may not in fact get that high because they believe, A, the economy is weakening probably more than the Fed acknowledges, but also they believe that inflation is going to be coming down even faster than the Fed pretends. But the reality is, Inflation is not going to weaken, it's going to strengthen. But the economy is not only going to weaken, but weaken much more than the markets expect. So the markets may, in fact, be right that the Fed stops hiking, but not because inflation comes down, but because the economy comes down or because employment comes down and unemployment goes up. But as of now, everybody thinks everything is great. It's a Goldilocks scenario. People are looking for a soft landing where the economy weakens just enough to bring down inflation but not enough to bring down corporate earnings and you're getting this rally in everything. But it's important to differentiate between the rallies that are sustainable and those that are not. For example, I believe the rally in gold is not only sustainable, but it will accelerate. But what we're seeing in tech stocks, for example, or cryptocurrencies is not sustainable. These are head fakes, dead cat bounces, and at some point soon, I think we're gonna see a reversal as markets become very disappointed in that reality doesn't match their fantasy, especially when it comes to inflation. In fact, one of the keys to why inflation is gonna be so much stronger than people think is because the dollar is gonna be so much weaker. Than everybody thinks because the weakness in the dollar is what's going to be the catalyst for another explosive move up in commodity prices and it's the decline in commodity prices that is helping to keep down goods prices which is why everybody is so convinced that we've seen the worst of inflation and it's headed lower but as commodities start to make new highs when the dollar makes new lows That's going to throw cold water on that theory. And people are once again going to be afraid of higher inflation. But I think the Fed is going to be afraid to fight it because it's afraid of what that fight might do to a much weaker economy and much weaker labor market than what the Fed now expects. But now I want to focus specifically on some of the things that Powell said first during his prepared remarks and then during the Q&A. That followed. First of all, Powell immediately acknowledged the hardship that inflation is causing Americans. Now, because the real cause of inflation is the U.S. government and the Federal Reserve acting in concert with one another, where the U.S. government spends money it doesn't have and then the Fed prints the money for the government to spend, that is why we have inflation. So if inflation is causing an economic hardship and if the government and the fed cause inflation then it's the government and the federal reserve that are responsible for that hardship of course powell will never accept responsibility for the pain that he is helping to inflict but it's the fed and the government that are the reason that so many americans are suffering this hardship inflation is a tax it is how we are paying for government and so if funding government is creating a hardship. For the people who are on the hook for the tab, well, it's the government that's to blame. Then Powell said that the Fed's responsibility was price stability, and it takes that responsibility seriously. Powell claimed that price stability is the bedrock of our economy, and so it's very important that we have price stability. Now, if that is true, why does the Fed insist on 2% inflation? Because price stability means no inflation. Stable prices don't go up every year by 2%. Stable prices remain the same. That's what stability means. There's no change. Things are stable. Powell doesn't want stable prices. He wants prices to go up 2% a year, and he wants to pretend that a steady 2% annual increase constitutes stability. It does not. But also, if Powell thinks that price stability, as defined by 2% inflation, is so important. Why is his goal simply to bring inflation back to 2%? After all, we've had so many years now where inflation is way above 2%, why wouldn't Powell be targeting a lower rate of inflation than 2% or maybe even falling prices? Because if we wanna get the average rate of inflation down to 2%, given how much inflation we had in 2021, 2022, how much we're on track to get in 2023, In order to bring the average back down to 2%, we need to have some years where it's way below 2%. In fact, it would really help if we had some years where prices fell. That would be a big relief. But for some reason, Powell is against that. He doesn't want to reverse any of the price increases. He just wants to make sure that price increases continue just at a slower rate than the rate that they've been rising in the past. So in other words, if you think prices are too high, expect no relief from the Fed, all the Fed is going to do is increase them at a slower rate. But of course, it's not even going to accomplish that. In reality, the rate's going to increase. Now, Powell mentioned in his prepared remarks that the Fed has made progress on inflation, but it indicated that it has more to be done, that the job is not finished, and that it would be premature for the Fed to declare victory And so further rate hikes are appropriate. And presumably those quarter point rate hikes are coming over the next couple of Fed meetings. But in reality, the Fed has made no progress in the fight against inflation. Sure, we have seen this temporary reduction in the rate of increase in prices, but it's only temporary. Because in order to really make progress on inflation fighting, Powell would have to change consumer behavior. We would have to have an increase in personal savings, and a decrease in consumption spending. We're not seeing that at all. Credit card debt is at an all-time high. Savings are at an all-time low. Households are spending everything they earn and then some. And then, of course, you have all this government spending. So we haven't made any real progress in fighting inflation. It only appears that way if you're focusing on the effects of inflation, which are prices rather than inflation itself, which is the expansion of the supply of money and credit. And that continues. Even if money supply growth has slowed, credit growth has not. Powell did mention that job growth continues to be robust. He continues to believe that we have a strong economy. And he's happy that the improvement in inflation has been able to happen Without imposing significant restraints on economic growth or employment, but he acknowledged. That's likely to happen. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night, and maybe a fancier dinner too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code and saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Powell said that returning inflation to 2% is going to require below-trend growth for some time and a softening of labor market conditions. Now, that's just one of several economic concepts that Powell got wrong during his press conference, first of all, in order to bring down inflation, you don't need to restrain economic growth. You need to restrain the growth of money supply. You need to restrain spending that results from money printing or excess credit. You don't want to restrain economic growth because economic growth, true economic growth, results in an increase in supply. And you want an increase in supply. That helps keep prices down. But if you actually end up stifling real economic growth, you get less supply, and that puts more upward pressure on prices. But that's a concept that Powell doesn't really understand. The same thing with labor market conditions. We don't need a softening in the labor market. We don't need to put people out of work to bring down prices. We need to put more people to work. That's what we need. People working means we produce more stuff. The more stuff we have, the lower the price of that stuff. So when people are put out of work who might otherwise be employed productively, that actually makes it harder for the Fed to bring down inflation because you're reducing supply. And of course, at the same time that a weakening economy reduces supply, the government stimulates demand with deficit spending. And since we have the biggest deficit spending ever outside of COVID going on right now, we are getting a historically large dose of fiscal stimulus and that is interfering with the Fed's fight against inflation if the Fed was really serious about fighting inflation Powell would be demanding that the federal government cut spending instead he's doing the opposite in fact that's a good segue for me to start talking about Powell's answers to the questions from the Q&A because he did get a question maybe more on the debt ceiling and Powell made it clear that he wants Congress to raise the debt ceiling. He said it's important that Congress raise the debt ceiling. In other words, he wants Congress to keep on borrowing money and keep on spending. That shows that he's not serious about fighting inflation because if he really wanted to fight inflation, instead of calling for Congress to raise the debt ceiling, he would be calling on Congress to cut spending. But no, he just wants a quick raise of the debt ceiling So Congress can keep on spending. In fact, the most ironic statement that he made with respect to the debt ceiling is he said that Congress needs to raise the debt ceiling so as not to risk the progress that the Fed has already made on fighting inflation. Think about that statement. What causes inflation is deficit spending. And what Powell wants Congress to do is to raise the debt ceiling so they can do more deficit spending. And he believes that that is going to help him fight inflation. It will do the opposite. It makes his job of fighting inflation even harder. If Powell really wanted some cooperation from Congress, instead of telling them to raise the debt ceiling, he would be telling them to cut spending, but he never does that. And in fact, whenever he's asked if government spending is complicating his fight against inflation, He says I can't answer that question because I'm not allowed to comment on fiscal policy, yet he can comment on raising the debt ceiling. It seems that he's only willing to offer his opinion when it's in support of government spending more, but never when it's in support of government spending less. Another point that Powell made in the Q&A was that he was very happy to welcome in disinflation, which he claims we now have. We still have inflation that's too high, But by disinflation, he means that the inflation rate is coming down. It's still above 2%, but it's not as far above 2% as it used to be. And so now Powell believes we're in disinflation. But what Powell doesn't understand is that the disinflation that we're now experiencing is transitory. Because I believe that before the year is over, we're going to start to see a reacceleration of the month over month and year over year increases in the CPI, and one of the reasons for that is gonna be the continued weakness in the dollar and strength in commodity prices. Now, there was a question about whether or not Powell saw any evidence of a wage price spiral. Now, of course, there can't be any evidence of a wage price spiral because it doesn't exist. The whole concept of a wage price spiral was dreamed up by a bunch of Keynesian economists during the 1970s that were looking for a scapegoat to blame inflation on. But prices don't go up because wages go up. Wages are, in fact, prices. They're just the price of labor. And prices don't go up because prices go up. Wages and other prices go up because the government creates inflation. But Powell wants people to think that inflation is created by the private sector, that the Fed is just some innocent bystander and the government, it's wages going up this spiral between wages and prices that causes inflation. And so Powell says that we have to make sure that doesn't happen. We don't see any evidence of it yet, according to Powell. But Powell said we have to make sure that this wage price spiral doesn't take hold because then the private sector is going to create all this inflation. And so if the Fed thinks that the private sector is at risk of creating all this inflation, well, then it will try to act. But of course, there is no wage price spiral. And the fact that Powell doesn't understand this is just more evidence that he doesn't understand inflation. But I think the best evidence that Powell doesn't understand inflation is because according to Powell, and this is something he said in response to a question, he said that the Federal Reserve has a bedrock belief that consumer expectations play a large part. In creating inflation. In other words, that what creates inflation is consumers believing that there's inflation. And then it becomes a self perpetuating prophecy because when consumers believe there's inflation, well, they demand higher wages. When businesses believe there's inflation, they raise prices. Or maybe if consumers think that prices are going to go up, they spend money even quicker. So according to the Fed, it's this consumer perception of something that might happen that actually causes what they think is going to happen to happen. And in other words, this is just another way for the Federal Reserve to point the blame for inflation at the private sector, at consumers, or maybe at businesses. But the reality is consumers are not causing inflation to go up because they expect it. Inflation is going up because the Fed is creating inflation, because the government is creating inflation, And consumers are simply reacting to the inflation that has already been created. It's not like to feel the dreams. If you expect it, it will come. The Fed has created inflation, whether consumers expect it or not. In fact, if consumers stop expecting inflation, but the Fed keeps creating money, right, if they keep creating inflation, it doesn't matter what the consumers expect, they're going to get higher prices. They're just going to be surprised by the inflation instead of expecting it. But at some point in time, consumers will start expecting higher inflation because they've been experiencing it. But Powell is now pointing to the fact that consumers believe inflation is coming down as some reason to expect that it will come down. Powell said he's seen data that shows that people are glad that inflation is coming down. Well, of course, if inflation is not as bad as it once was, they'd be glad but they're not happy at the rate of inflation today because it's still high. But then Powell said something that was pretty funny. He said, people really don't like inflation. Is he just figuring that out? Was he not sure? Were there some people that he thought might like inflation? No, people don't like inflation, just like they don't like paying taxes. And if people realized that inflation was, in fact, a tax, they would probably dislike paying the inflation tax even more than they dislike paying other taxes. Also, while Powell did deny that the Fed was pausing in the rate hikes, he did admit that the Fed had shifted into a lower pace of rate hikes. Clearly, they're doing quarter point rate hikes. They're not doing the 50 or the 75 basis point rate hikes that they had done in the past. But that does amount to an acknowledgement that the Fed is moving more slowly than it had been in the past, which you can say amounts to a soft pivot, but it's certainly not the hard pivot that the markets are anticipating. But in talking about the slower pace of hikes, Powell acknowledged the lag and that the Fed needs some time to assess the progress that is being made in reducing inflation based on its prior rate hikes, which in my mind verifies the idea that the Fed does want to sit back and assess any progress that has been made before any significant tightening of policy beyond the couple of quarter point hikes that it has already telegraphed. Another ironic point that Powell made with respect to his outlook on the economy and whether or not it would be weak, one of the reasons that Powell was confident that the economy would not be weak was that he said that state governments have a lot of cash and that they're gonna be spending this cash and so all that extra spending is gonna support economic growth. It won't. When governments spend money, that doesn't support economic growth. If anything, it supports inflation. In fact, he even acknowledged that the federal government is supplying to help people deal with rising prices. And all this is supposedly gonna support economic growth, but in reality, it's gonna fuel inflation. Powell still doesn't get the connection between spending and prices, because he's focused on supply. He keeps talking about the fact that all the supply chain bottlenecks have cleared up when the real problem has not been the supply side, it's been the demand side. Sure, whenever you create a lot of phony demand by printing a bunch of money, you never have enough supply. Real demand is a function of supply. Supply creates demand. And when supply creates demand, prices don't go up. But when government creates demand, prices go up. And that's exactly what's happening. Powell was also asked if he thought the Fed might start cutting rates later this year. And to that question, Powell said it was very unlikely that the Fed would be cutting rates this year. Now, of course, a lot of the market participants believe that the Fed will be cutting rates before the end of the year, and they may, in fact, be doing that. But again, it's not going to be because inflation is too low. It's going to be because the economy is much weaker. In fact, it may be because of a financial crisis. In fact, Powell was asked a question about what the Fed would do if inflation came down too much. And instead of just saying, well, that's impossible because it it can't come down too much, the more the better, Powell basically said, we got the tools for that. In case inflation comes down too much, we can fix that problem. In other words, if inflation got below 2%, Powell would do something to get the rate back up. But of course, as I mentioned earlier, why? Why would 1% inflation or 0% inflation or minus one, why would that be a problem? That would be a solution to a problem because that would help lower prices that went way up over the last couple of years. And if you really care about the consumer, as Powell said in the beginning of his prepared remarks that inflation was creating a hardship, well, wouldn't a reduction in prices help to alleviate the pain of that hardship? But for some reason, the Fed absolutely is committed to not allowing prices to decline. They only want the rate of increase to decline from where it is now, 6% or whatever, back down to 2%. But unfortunately for Americans, the Fed won't even succeed in accomplishing that because long before we get anywhere near 2%, The Fed is going to start throwing gasoline on this inflation fire because the economy and the labor markets are going to be much weaker. And again, as I said, we may very well end up in another financial crisis given how much rates have already increased. Remember, a year ago, before the Fed even started raising interest rates for the first time, they were projecting that the Fed funds rate in February of 2023 would only be about 1%. Instead, it's almost 5%. So they were way off in their forecast on where rates would be because they were way off on their forecast of where inflation would be. Well, their crystal ball isn't any clearer now than it was back then. And they're completely wrong with respect to their current outlook on inflation, unemployment, and the economy. Now, earlier in the day, prior to the FOMC rate hike and the Powell press conference, we did get a lot of economic data that was released, almost all of it bad. First of all, we got the ADP employment report, and we always get that report on the Wednesday of a week where we get the official government non-farm payroll report, which comes out the first Friday of every month, and that is this Friday. And so I will be speaking about that jobs report on my next podcast. But the expectation For January was for a gain of 158,000 jobs, and the actual number was a disappointing 106,000 jobs. Now, as soon as this came out, everybody started blaming it on the weather. That's very curious because whenever a report comes out that's stronger than expected, they never look for some excuse to rationalize that. They always just say, oh, it's stronger than expected because we have a better than expected economy. They only try to make excuses for the number when it comes out less than expected and not more than expected. But all these weather excuses basically amount to a snow job. The number is likely weaker because the labor market is weaker. In fact, the labor market is much weaker than any of these numbers show. Because if you look at the layoffs that are being announced, there's not a day that goes by where a major company doesn't announce huge job layoffs. Yet despite all these job cuts, we still have near record low unemployment and we keep creating all these jobs. So what the government is telling us is happening in the labor market doesn't jive with what the biggest employers are telling us about the labor market. Now, there was a upward revision to the December number, which was originally reported at plus 235, and they notched that up to plus 253. But even if you consider the upward revision to December, the January total was still a disappointment over what markets expected. Now, we also got the PMI manufacturing number. This was the final read for January. I'm not sure what they were expecting, but it came out at 46.9. Remember, anything below 50 represents contraction, recession. We got another weak number today, the ISM manufacturing number for January. That was supposed to come out at 48, and that would have been a slight decline from the unrevised 48.4 from December. Well, we got an even lower number, 47.4 was what we got. That was actually lower than the low end of expectations, which went from a high of 48.7 to a low of 47.5, and we notched under that low by one-tenth. So again, more weak economic data. Construction spending came out for December. Again, they were looking for a decline of 0.1. Instead, we've got a decline of 0.4. Now, there was an upward revision to the November number from up 0.2 to up 0.5. But in total, it's still less than what the market was expecting. And the year-over-year increase in construction spending up 7.7% down from the upwardly revised 9.1% increase in November. But again, these numbers are not adjusted for inflation. Construction costs have skyrocketed over the last year. So the fact that construction spending is up just 7.7% means that actual construction is down. We are constructing a lot less. It's just because prices are so much higher, it costs a lot more money to build less stuff. The only number that we got today that I guess was stronger than expected was the JOLTS number for December. The consensus was for 10.2 million job openings for December, which would have been a decline from what was originally reported as 10.458 million in November. They did revise that down a bit to 10.44 million, but the December number Shot all the way up to 11.012 million. This blew away the upper end of estimates, which was 10.3 million. The low end of the range was 9.5. Now, I have no idea where all these new job openings came from. It doesn't make any sense to me that so many companies would be looking to hire people during the same month where so many companies are announcing significant layoffs of the people that they've already hired. So this is another number that really flies in the face of reality. We'll see if we get some type of revisions to this number in the coming months. But I would take this thing with a grain of salt because it's such a big outlier. In fact, I think the markets are taking the number with a grain of salt as well. I think that's why there was such a positive reaction in some of the stocks, and in particular, the reaction we got in the dollar, in the gold market, in the bond market. Investors are seeing through the outliers when it comes to stronger economic data and focusing on the weaker data, which really seems to be the rule rather than the exception. It's just that investors still don't understand that the better numbers that they're getting on inflation are just transitory. The increase in inflation wasn't transitory, but the decrease will be. When investors finally figure that out, it's going to be a huge market mover. But I want to finish up today's podcast by taking note of hearings that are now underway in Congress, the House of Representatives to be exact. They are looking into the fraud and abuse surrounding the pandemic relief programs. Remember the PPP, forgivable loans, the extended and enhanced unemployment benefits. Congress now is surprised that people committed fraud and abuse these programs to enrich themselves and to receive government money to which they were not technically entitled. Now, why anybody in Congress would be surprised when in fact these programs were specifically designed to be rife with fraud and easy to abuse? In fact, I remember when they were trying to rush through the pandemic relief programs, and some people pointed out That it was so easy to commit fraud that the government wasn't requiring anybody to prove anything, that they would just accept whatever you said at face value and you would be qualified for hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars in aid. Congressmen were saying, no, 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 we can't require people to prove anything. That's going to take too long. And they also said that nobody would lie. People weren't going to take advantage of this. It's a pandemic. It's an emergency. And so we could just be on the honor system. In fact, they were saying that it would be heartless to ask people who are already suffering from a pandemic to prove that their claims were genuine, that we didn't want to compound their misery by making them prove that they needed the money. Let's just hand it out anyway and assume they're being honest. And even if a few people do end up putting in a fraudulent claim and we end up paying it, it's worth it. It's just part of the cost of the program because it's so important that we get this relief out there and we get it out there quick that we have to dispense with what we would normally do to root out fraud and abuse. We just have to accept fraud and abuse as part of the cost of these necessary aid programs. Now, first of all, the programs weren't necessary. They did harm, not good. But how anybody now can look back and try to be surprised that this was going on. In fact, it reminds me of that scene from Casablanca when the captain comes in and shuts down Rick's Cafe and then Humphrey Bogart asks the captain, why are you shutting me down? And he says, I'm shocked to find that gambling is going on here. And then one of the waiters shows up and says, you're winning, sir. And he thanks him and puts the money in his pocket. Nobody in Congress should be shocked to discover that people committed fraud or abused the COVID relief programs. In fact, when these programs were first announced on this podcast, I went over all of the fraud and abuse that I knew was going to come. In fact, I mentioned that my asset management company, Your Pacific Asset Management, technically qualified for hundreds of thousands of dollars in aid, but I didn't want to apply for it. I knew that my business wasn't suffering from the pandemic. In fact, it was actually getting better during the pandemic, and I had no intention of laying off any of my workers, but I could have put in a claim and I could have gotten a loan and I wouldn't have had to pay the loan back because I wasn't gonna fire anybody. But I didn't want to claim that I was suffering when I knew that I wasn't, and so I didn't submit a claim. But that didn't stop lots of other hedge funds and asset management companies that were much bigger than mine and must have also been making more money during the pandemic from filing claims because the financial services industry received millions and millions of dollars of forgivable PPP loans. Ironically, I could have used a PPP loan at my bank, because my bank actually suffered losses as a result of COVID, but banks were disqualified from the program. But what happened to my bank was we relied pretty heavily on the income that we earned on interest, on deposits from our Federal Reserve account, and the Fed slashed interest rates down to zero, so we lost all of that income. And because the bank didn't make any loans, the rest of the bank's revenue came from fees from transactions. And a lot of our customers were running businesses in Europe and everything locked down. And so our transaction revenue collapsed, but we had to keep the bank going. I didn't lay anybody off. We still had to have services available for people who wanted them. We still had to do all the compliance. Better than half the bank's employees were in compliance and we needed all those people. So I didn't lay anybody off. I lost a lot of money and I didn't get any loans at all. So I had to come out of pocket personally and subsidized the bank to cover those losses. And of course, we were also having a tough time because we were having to cover the cost of a huge investigation into the bank, which ultimately completely exonerated the bank and everyone running it, but it still cost a lot of money to comply with the investigation. But the worst part is that the government leaked the confidential investigation to 60 Minutes Australia, which then came out with a hit piece on me which proclaimed me guilty, even though I never ended up even being charged with a crime, but they convicted me of it. And that caused a lot of problems for the bank. And so I was losing a ton of money as a result of that, because a lot of the bank's counterparties were afraid to do business with the bank because they didn't want to do business with me based on what I had been accused of doing by 60 Minutes Australia. Of course, everything they accused me of doing was false because the investigation that had been leaked ultimately exonerated me, but they didn't wait for the investigation to end and for all the facts to come out. They just prematurely jumped to the wrong conclusion and convicted me of a crime that ultimately they couldn't even find enough evidence to charge me with, let alone convict me. But I don't wanna get into all the details about that now. Believe me, I'm gonna be talking a lot more about it once this whole situation is resolved, but I wanna just get back to the fraud and abuse that I knew from the beginning was going to happen with these PPP loans. I said this was going to be the biggest honeypot of all time, that you were going to have more fraud and more abuse of the pandemic relief programs than anything else Congress has ever done. You see, what our politicians don't understand is whenever the government is giving away taxpayer money, people are going to do whatever they can to qualify, even commit fraud. Now, sometimes what they're doing is not technically illegal, but they rearrange their situation to qualify for money that they otherwise wouldn't qualify for if they didn't rearrange their situation. Now, sometimes it's outright fraud. They don't really qualify, but they pretend to qualify because the money is just so big. And that is the moral hazard that is implicit in all of these programs. Anytime the government creates a program, and they think it's gonna cost a certain amount of money, they're always wrong. They dramatically underestimate how much anything is gonna cost because they never take into consideration moral hazard. They don't look into how people are going to rearrange their affairs and or lie in order to qualify for the money. So when they pass these programs and they see a certain number of people that they expect to qualify, and then they budget the program Based on the number of people who currently qualify to receive the money, they're always way off because once the program is passed, the number of people who qualify for the benefits explode because people want the benefits. And even if they didn't qualify when the bill was passed, they make sure they qualify afterwards to get the money, even if they have to lie and pretend they qualified. In fact, the biggest frauds are the frauds against government, because government is never going to be as good a steward of other people's money as other people will be of their own money. Meaning if it's your money, you're going to take better precautions to make sure you're not defrauded. But if it's not your money, if the money belongs to somebody else, well, then who cares? Because if there's fraud, if there's abuse, it's not your money that's being stolen. It doesn't cost you anything. It doesn't hurt the politicians. In fact, the politicians probably benefit from the fact that even more people qualify for their programs because it helps justify the existence of the programs. They'll say, you see how important this program was? Look how many more people needed it than we thought. They don't make the connection between the program itself and the need. One of the reasons that poverty programs perpetuate poverty is because people want to qualify for those programs even if they have to impoverish themselves to get the money.